Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for the privilege we have to come and to open Your Word. We recognize that we rely and trust on You to guide us through the study of Your Word, not only this day, but every day. We are assured of the promise that Your Word goes forth, accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent. Father, I pray that the purpose for which Your Word is sent today is to edify and to encourage, to strengthen, (coughs) to convict, to empower, and to fulfill uh, in our lives Your plans and Your purpose for us individually, as families, and as a church. I pray, Father, that as we consider the things that we're going to study today in Revelation chapter 9, Father, that You would burn intensely in our hearts um, a passion for Your holiness, a desire for purity in our own lives, and a brokenness for the lost around us, many of whom perhaps will experience the things that we're studying today. I pray, Father, that You would bring personal and significant application from this passage into our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, after a few weeks of introductory study, we are ready now for Revelation chapter 9. And we are looking at the fifth trumpet. Now it's interesting, as we are studying the things that are taking place in the future, in the tribulation, um, it's interesting that in this series of, uh, of, uh, of judgments to come upon the earth, that John is able to cover the first four trumpets in a matter of verses, and then he requires 12 verses to deal with the fifth trumpet blast, in the remaining of the chapter 13 through 21 to deal with the sixth. There's something unique and interesting that takes place between the fourth trumpet judgment and the fifth. You will remember that there in heaven, John is in heaven before the Lord, and he has observed the things that are taking place. And at this particular juncture in our study, there are the presence angels there in the throne room of God, and each one of them has been given a trumpet, and at the command of God, the presence angel blasts the trumpet. And when the present angel blasts the trumpet, not the pleasant angel brass the trumpet, though trumpets are brass, I guess, the present angels blast the trumpet, the judgment of that trumpet blast comes down to the earth. So in, in between chapter 8 and chapter 9, the last verse of chapter 8 gives us this warning, if you will. Listen to Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. The Bible says, Then I looked, and this is John, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. Notice three times, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. And then he gives the reason for the pronouncement of the woes. 
because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So after the fourth trumpet blast, the symbol of this eagle is flying back and forth mid-heaven in the earth and is announcing the judgment that is about to come. I personally see that warning as a measure of mercy. I see that warning as a measure of mercy because as you and I know, because we have the advantage of reading the entire book, the judgments are not about to let up. In fact, they are about to become more intense and they continue to happen uh, with greater speed and rapidity and more severity and intensity than the previous ones. And so as bad as things are upon the earth, and we have already seen that God has uh, begun to take back His creation, the grass, a third of the grass has burnt up, the water that they enjoy, a third of it has basically been taken away. A third of the stars in heaven that people look up and enjoy and love to long and, and ponder the creation of God has been taken away. We've also seen in previous studies, and we're going to see even here today, that God even uses, as we've said in the past, the good angels to pronounce His judgments and as instruments in His hands to bring forth the judgment because God is sovereign over everything. He uses creation. He uses the creation of the angels. And we've even studied in recent days that God even has the power and the sovereignty over the fallen angels to employ them in His service of pouring out His wrath upon the earth. And in fact, that is exactly what we see in this particular passage today. The reason that I say that it's a, it's a measure of mercy is because rather than greater and more significant and yes, demonic judgment and wrath and activity taking place upon the earth, God sends an eagle to announce what is coming. Our prayer should be that the people who hear that warning would have ears to hear what God is trying to say to them and perhaps even with the announcement of that woe which is about to come, that men would repent and repent of their sins, fall on their face, and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the truth is, even as we see in our study next week, coming to the end of this chapter, that rather than the pronouncement of the woe, and rather than the judgments of the fourth or the fifth trumpet sound, and the sixth causing men in their humility to fall on their face and cry out to God, they did not repent and they did not return. In fact, their hearts were hardened even more so. Now, I want to be clear here that we cannot simply take this, the approach of the study of the book of Revelation as though we are just reading simply about future events in history that do not affect us in any way at all. 
Uh, part of my concern with studying the book of Revelation is that you would develop the mindset that says, it, it, why are we even studying this? Because it has no impact on my life at all as a believer. I'm going to be in heaven. But I want you to know that the things that are taking place there in their totality are also seen and experienced in their shadow imagery of today. And what I think as we look in Revelation chapter 9, what I think that we should be mindful of is the idea that spiritual warfare is real and spiritual warfare is intense. That's the main idea of this chapter. This chapter is ultimately about spiritual warfare that is going to come upon those who dwell upon the earth. Now, yes, it's going to come from a different set of demons, those who are going to be set free from the abyss, than the ones who are free today. And we're going to talk about that. And yes, these are operating exactly according to the plans and purpose and limitations of God. But I want you to understand that you and I face spiritual warfare on a daily basis. You and I encounter demons. You and I engage in the principalities and powers of, of, of darkness who are not simply come to, make, to, to cause you to have a bad day, but truly come seeking to destroy you. These spiritual forces and powers would kill you in a heartbeat if God would allow it. The devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Jesus says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. As last week when we studied in Luke chapter 8 about the legion of demons uh, that possessed the, 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 the man in the tombs. Though they were causing him to thrash around and cut himself and no man could find him and no man could tame him, I believe in my heart of hearts that they were seeking to kill that man and anyone that was uh, connected to him. Because that is what they do. Evil knows no boundaries uh, imposed upon themselves. Evil has no sense of mercy. Evil has nothing but full outright evil uh, uh, committing as, as much devastation as it possibly can. And were it not, as we're going to see in this passage, the limitations of God... Then what, then what would happen is, is they would certainly take over and utterly obliterate anything in its path. So here is the pronouncement of the woes in chapter 8 verse 13. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. And the three woes are the fifth trumpet judgment in chapter 9, the sixth trumpet judgment in chapter 9, and then the seventh trumpet, which will actually not come until chapter 16. And at the end of each of those 
trumpet judgments is the pronouncement of the woe. So just so you can get the idea, look in Revelation chapter 9, verse 12. The first woe is past. So at the conclusion of the fifth trumpet, the first woe is past. Behold, though, two woes are still coming after these things. So let's take a look at this fifth trumpet judgment. Having done our background study the last couple of weeks, we are ready to take the things that we have learned and bring those into this passage to let the Bible interpret itself for us. First of all, I want you to see that God is sovereign in what He allows. God is sovereign in what He allows. Look in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and John says, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Now I think it's interesting that as we come... It worked fine in my office. That, that's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. Look in your Bibles. Look in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 9. Um, the fifth angel sounded. John says, I saw a star from heaven. Now, as we consider what is this star from heaven, it is possible that God could take an actual star that you and I had the pleasure of looking up and enjoying... And God could take that star and hurl it to the earth to bring about judgment. In fact, there are a lot of meteors that are out there that head to the earth, most head towards the earth from time to time. Scientists and those who are uh, observing the skies note those things. Most of them miss us, burn up in the atmosphere before they come. But there's always a warning that one would come and hit the earth knock it off its axis and create untold havoc. However, that is not the star, the type of star, I believe, that we uh, are going to see in that John is looking at and the earth will experience in that day. And the reason is, is because it says, I saw, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And notice about this star, this key of the bottomless pit was given not to it which you would think would be a star, but to Him. But to Him. There are many interpretations to who this star is. Uh, Some say that this star is Satan himself. That here God is employing Satan by giving him the key to the abyss. Now you and I, because we've been here the last couple of weeks, are familiar with the abyss, are familiar with the prison, are familiar with the subset of demons who did something so evil and so wrong that God said enough is enough and He took hold of them and locked them in chains in darkness awaiting the final judgment. So we know from past week's study 
study that there are some subset of angels that are locked into this abyss, this prison, this holding place, wherever it is and however it is, God is the one who has captured them and placed them there and locked the door. And you have to be stronger than God to unlock the door to this abyss and let them out. So you either have to overpower God or God has to be the one who gives the authority for this to happen. Some scholars suggest that God gave the key to Satan and Satan is the one who comes to the earth and unlocks the abyss in the plans and purposes of God. I don't see it that way. I see it differently. Uh, I see, because when it says the key was given to him, the key was given by God, I see that this is an angel in heaven used for the purpose of God, instruments in God's hand, who is to come and to unlock the, uh, the uh, abyss. And the reason is, because a little bit later, there is a super angel, if you will, who is the king in authority, uh, Abaddon, as Sybil read for us, and Apollyon, same, same person, two, two, um, two different names. Uh, I believe that would be the references to Satan controlling, or at least a very powerful demon controlling um, and directing the angel under God's sovereign plan. So I don't necessarily see that this has to be Satan here. Now we know when we get to Revelation chapter 21 through 3 that Satan ultimately is going to be, um, there's going to be an angel, Revelation chapter 20 verse 1, an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he's going to take a hold of the devil um, who is the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So here in Revelation chapter 20, an angel has a key working under the sovereign authority of God. And I think that's exactly what we have taking place in Revelation chapter 9 as well. And that this is not Satan as the star. Uh, leave that interpretation up to you. It's not dogmatic, but the idea is is that God is the one who has control and when something is given, when something says it's given to Him in the book of Revelation, the, the overwhelming majority of the time, God is the one who is giving it and He's given it to His agents. And so a star was heaven and the key of the bottomless pit was given to Him. Notice verse 2, He opened the bottomless pit... And smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Now we don't know the location of this pit. We don't have any idea if this pit is in the heart of the earth. And where this door is, we don't know if there's a physical door. We don't know if there's a physical lock. We don't know anything. This is a vision that God is given to John. John is recording what he sees in the vision. But regardless of whether it's a physical location in the heart of the earth, as some say, with a door somewhere that is unidentified, and, and regardless if there is, if this one comes and opens the physical door, when this happens, darkness is going to fill the sky. Darkness is going to fill the sky. So this, this in this bottomless pit, you know, are a subset of demons. Now, who those demons are, how many they are. 
What they did to get there, we don't know anything, but we do know from our previous study that demons themselves want to do everything they can do to avoid going into the that pit, right? Remember, G, the, the, the demons, legion, speaking to Jesus, have you come to torment us before this time? Please don't send us to the uh, abyss. It's interesting when you think about these demons who are locked in this place. We have no idea what they did. The idea seems to be that they did something so evil and so heinous that God said, enough is enough. You no longer have freedom to reign across the earth. And He takes hold of them and puts them there and locks them in. Uh, that's, the, that's the position that I hold. Now, the interesting part is, is if you hold that position, they did something so evil, then the question would be, then did Satan not do something even more evil? So why doesn't God take Satan and lock him in? Well, he will in the future. He didn't in the past to accomplish his purpose. And I don't know the answer to that question. But all I know is, is based on 1 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter, Jude, verse we saw in the past, there is this abyss. It is locked. They are there. They do not come and go in and out of that on their own accord. They are locked there in everlasting chains. And at some point in the future, someone will come with the key under God's authority and at God's command and unlock the abyss. And out of that will rise this smoke. And out of that will come the demons. And this is the only place in the Bible where there, as we're going to see in just a few minutes, a physical description of what demons look like without without possessing a body. We've said in the past that demons have to possess a, a, a conduit. They can't, in, in, up, to, up to the point of Revelation chapter 9, they can't uh, manifest a presence for themselves. They always have to have a serpent. They have to have a, a conduit of some way in order to be able to uh, present uh, themselves. So notice what it says in verse uh, verse 3. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. So these demons come up, and when these demons come up, John sees the appearance of locusts. Now that's an interesting picture. Not only does that remind us of the plague, the locust plague from the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, but locust is also very interesting because when locusts travel, they travel um, in columns, in columns. There are people who actually study locusts. If you Google locusts, they study, they uh, travel in columns, and these columns can be four miles wide and a hundred feet deep. Could you imagine a wall of locusts four miles wide, a hundred feet deep, coming, right? I mean, you talk about uh, utter destruction. Now, these aren't regular locusts. These locusts have... Uh, they have a scorpion sting to them. Notice what it says. The, and, and, and they locust upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. As they ha have power. Now, now notice what it says. Just, just look down at verse 5. We're going to get there. But notice what it says, that their torment 
was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Now, I promise you, I don't, I've never been stung by a scorpion, and I don't know if you have either, but I'm sure that a regular scorpion sting is very, very painful. Could you imagine the ongoing, consistent, repetitive sting of a demon in the form of a locust with a scorpion sting? There would not be enough uh, uh, medicine or cream or anything to put on it to bring any relief whatsoever. And, and you can notice, and we'll see when we get to verse 5, that the word torment is used three times to talk about that which the, the type of pain that this caused. This isn't just, oh, an irritating mosquito bite. This isn't a bee sting. This is, on three occasions, is described as torment. And we've learned in our past that demons have the desire and ability to torment and also they have the ability in the future to be tormented as well. So here they are, these locust-like creatures. They're given this power by God. They have these scorpion stings. They come in columns. It's also interesting that that these, in verse 5, that these uh, scorpions were not permitted to kill anyone, but these scorpions were able to torment for five months. So for five months, these locusts with scorpion stingers were set loose upon the face of the earth. It's interesting also, if you study locusts, that the lifespan of a, of a real locust is five months. Uh, typically, um, from approximately May until uh, September. I think that's kind of interesting that, that how that fits in and, and plays in with what we know about locusts. Uh, today. So these demons come up, they have the appearance of locusts, they have these stings, and power was given to them. Power was given to them. Well, who gave them power? God gave them power to pull off His wrath, His judgment through the fifth seal trumpet. God is the one who is sovereign over even spiritual warfare and darkness. And if He's over that in the future, beloved, by way of application and by implication, He is over that today as we engage in spiritual warfare as well. You'll notice that God is the one who released them. God is the one who gave power to them. I want you to also notice that God is the one who limited the time frame and limited the magnitude of the torment that they can cause. Notice what it says in verse 4. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth. God says, stay off my grass. And guess what? They said, okay. And they did just that, right? They were told, stay off my grass, nor any green thing, nor any tree. And they obeyed. But now look, 
what they are to her, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, if you go back to Revelation chapter 7, verse 2, you're going to see that there was an angel ascending from the risen sun, having the seal of God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our gods on their foreheads. Now, these people weren't going along, and all of a sudden they get popped in the head. Wow, the V8. They may not even know that there's a seal placed on them at that particular time. I I don't know. But there's some people who are sealed who would ultimately be saved, set apart, maybe are saved already, and still living in this time period, but the seal is placed on them, and these demons, they cannot touch the grass, they cannot touch the trees or any green thing, and they cannot touch those who are sealed, who are sealed. Um, And verse 5 tells us, and they were not permitted to kill anyone. So God places limitations upon these demons that are released from the abyss to come to the earth. And listen to this. Now now think about this. What do you think demons would do if it were up to them? I promise they would not they would not subscribe to any limitations whatsoever. If God says stay off my grass, what do you think a demon would do if he could? Destroy the grass. If God says stay out of my trees, what do you think a demon would do if he could? Destroy the trees. If God says don't touch anyone with the seal, if a demon could, what do you think he would do? Absolutely. If, he's, if, the, if God says don't kill, the demon would absolutely do everything he could to do it. So why do they not violate the command of God? Why do they not violate the limitations and the boundaries that God has set in place for them? Beloved, listen to this carefully. Because, not because they don't want to, and not because they have a heart of obedience towards God, because they don't. But the reason they don't violate the boundaries of God is because God is sovereign and more powerful and they can't. Another example of that biblically is the ark. Remember, the world was filled with evil and and every thought of man's heart was continually evil and God was going to destroy the earth with the flood. And He took eight people, Noah and his families, and He placed them safely in the ark and He floated them above the waters of the earth, on the waters above the earth, why do you think that Satan and every demon he could muster did not come and destroy that boat and kill those eight people in the ark? Because they couldn't. Not that they wouldn't. Because they couldn't. Here they have limitations as well, and they even have limitations for the time period that they have. And those limitations are that they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And guess what happened at the end of the five months? 
every single demon that did something so bad, so wicked, so evil, that God removed them from the face of the earth and locked them in the abyss with all the evil that would continue to store up and build up for as long as they're going to be there and hatred towards God and all of those things, I will promise you this on the authority of God's Word, when God says you can do it for five months and you've got to come back, that every single one of them went and obeyed the boundaries of God because they could do nothing else. And every single one at the conclusion of the five months found their place back exactly where God said for them to. What's the point of this? I want you to understand that God is sovereign in what He allows. Now, because I'm preaching to us today and not just giving a future history lesson, what I want you to see by way of application and implication is that 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 same truth is true in your life today. Now let me say this. We get it wrong because we take the sovereignty of God and we tend to put man at the center of God's sovereignty and we say things like this. God will never give you more than you can handle. No, no, no. God doesn't limit. God doesn't limit based upon your ability to handle it. The fact of the matter is, is you can't handle anything, and neither can I. We have very little. Right? Uh, look, God blesses us, and then we hit a little bump on the road, and we're like, "Oh God, where are you?" Right? Right? God, God, right, fulfilled. He answers prayer. He does all this stuff. And what do we say? God, you are good, right? You are worthy and all these things, and I will worship you forever. And then you pray a prayer, and your request doesn't get answered in the way that you think it should, in the time frame that you think it should. And all of a sudden, you wonder, God, where are you? And why are you doing this to me? Why do you hate me so? Beloved, God will put on you more than what you can handle. But He will not put on you more than what He can handle and enable you to handle it right through Him, with Him, by His strength. They are limited in what they do. And what I want you to understand is, is everything that you go through, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is the one. Hey, when He cranks the fire up, the thermostat of the fire up in your life and things get really hot and heavy and all of those things, listen, rest assured this, that God is the one whose hand is on the thermostat, either cranking up the fire a little more or when His purposes are complete to lower the temperature of those trials and tribulations in your life. Beloved, God is sovereign in what He allows. And everything that He allows, just like with these coming up in the fifth trumpet, just like this, every purpose and plan of God is accomplished by whatever means God chooses to use, whatever instrument God chooses to use in order to bring about His plan and His purpose in our lives. So what do we do? Trust Him and rest. Will want to be difficult? 
Absolutely. Because truth number two that we see in verse 5 and 6 is, is that humans may suffer and even seek death. Humans may suffer and even seek death. So as these things are going on, and notice in verse 5, they're not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Again, I've already pointed this out. Torment is used three times. Um, It's not there uh, uh, by accident. God places every word under His care. Every word is placed in Scripture. Torment, torment, torment. It's to give us an idea of how bad it will be in that day. Well, how bad will it be? Notice verse 6. In those days, men will seek death. Now look at this. They want to die to escape what they are enduring. They will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees them. They will not even be able to commit suicide in that day because they think suicide would be an escape from the things that they are enduring. John MacArthur captures well the magnitude of what is unfolding before us and his words are painful to contemplate about the things taking place. Listen to it. I want to read this. So intense will be the torment inflicted on unbelievers, those without the seal, on unbelievers that in those days, the five months of verse 5, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. All hope is gone. There will be no tomorrow. The earth people have loved and worshipped will have been utterly devastated. The land ravaged by earthquakes, fires, and volcanoes. The sea filled with the putrefying bodies of billions of dead creatures. Much of the fresh water supply turned into bitter poison. The atmosphere polluted with gases and showers of heavenly debris. Then worst of all will come foul smoke from the pit of hell as the demons are released to spiritually and physically torment wicked people. The dream of a worldwide utopia under the leadership of the Antichrist will have died. Driven mad by the filth and vileness of the demon infestations, people will see relief in death only to find that death has taken a holiday. There will be no escape from the agony inflicted by the demons, no escape from divine judgment. All attempts at suicide, whether by gunshot, poison, drowning, or leaping from buildings, will fail. In that day, it will be so bad, so devastating, these unbelievers will seek death and cannot find it. How bad does it have to be that men would rather die than live through it? All sense of hope is gone and devastated in this day. As we think about what it's like in that day, I want to take an aside for for just a moment and I want to encourage you with these words. Every person who is alive on the earth, church, we're not there, but the ones that are sealed 
the ones that are right, they if they were standing right by the abyss when the door was unlocked would be untouched and unharmed by every single demon that was released. They will still live upon the earth in the other devastation that it is until God is through with them and God calls them home. But beloved, they cannot be touched. They will not be stung. They will not be bothered or irritated at all by the scorpion stings of those locusts because God has sealed them and He has given the boundaries for them for those locusts, those demons, to not touch those who have been sealed. If that's true in the future, do you ever think about this? Do you ever think about the things that God shields you from today? Are, are you, you, you're a Christian. You're a born-again believer. You're here upon the earth. And yes, there are trials and tribulations and suffering and things. I'm not saying that we are immune to any of those things. But what I am saying is this. Is you are sealed until the day of redemption. And if you are sealed, anything that comes into your life is that which God has allowed. And I want you to understand that you and I have no clue the multitude of things that were coming at us that God diverted or God redirected or God shielded us from. If you would just take time to stop and reflect and to think upon that truth for a little while... I think your heart would overflow in worship and response to God and who He is because of the things that He has protected you against. Because I promise you this, the things that He has allowed in your life pale in comparison to the things that He shielded you from, guarded you from, redirected and diverted away from you. Well, how does He do that? Okay. Practically, you're ready to go somewhere and you're in a hurry and you go out to your car and you get in your car and you realize, ugh, I don't have my keys. You go into the place where your keys are and your keys aren't hanging up where they are. You run all through the house to try to find them only to figure out that you've left them somewhere in your pants pocket that's probably in the dirty clothes hamper somewhere or if it's in my house, it's thrown over the chair where I left it last. Throw the clothes out, get in there, grab the keys, go in the car, and now I'm five minutes late. You get in your car, you crank it up, you go down the road, and there at the intersection where you were supposed to be is an unbelievably awful accident. Do you ever stop to think that God diverted you or delayed you to protect you from that happening? Do you realize that you don't know the things that God has done, the magnitude to which He has diverted and directed and delivered? But I can promise you this, anything that comes into your life and anything that happens to you and anything that comes upon you is allowed by God for His purpose. It's for our good and for His glory. You want a Bible verse to back it up? All things, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose.
Humans may suffer and die. They're going to see death and they can't find it. Because listen, even when it comes to lost people, you want to talk about God. God is the one who gives a man his first breath and He is the one who gives him his last. And no man will breathe his last before God allows. Now that doesn't mean that we ought to live recklessly, but I think we do need to live with more courage and more boldness. And I do think that we need to take more risk for the glory of God and go and do things that God has called us to do and live with less fear and trust God in that which He's called us to do because He will protect us and guide us all the way through. And if we die in that instance on that day, in that, then that will be exactly according to the plan and the purpose of God. Let us rejoice and be glad. I also want to remind us finally and briefly that demons are powerful and they love to harm us. Notice what it says here in verse 7. And I want you to see eight times the word like is there. John is witnessing this. He's recording it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There are no words to adequately describe what he's, what he's witnessing. And so all he does is he takes things that he's familiar with, he takes ideas and concepts and people that he's familiar with, and he applies them to what he sees going on. And so all he can say is he can use simile after simile after simile. Eight times the word like is found in this passage. Notice what it says. The appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. This means that they are an army prepared to wage war against God and His people. Further, they're of considerable size and terrifying in appearance. On their heads, verse 7 says, appeared to be crowns like gold. These crowns of gold point to authority and power that had been given to them. And their faces were like like the faces of men. Faces of men speak of intelligence. They are cunning and cruel, wise and wicked. There is a method to their madness. They have a leader and they will follow a well-orchestrated game plan. Verse 8, they had hair like the hair of women. And I'm not going to touch that. I'm just going to skip it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Hair of women is perhaps an indication of the long antenna of locusts or to the seductiveness of their strategies. That they are alluring and enticing could be the idea. And their teeth, verse 8 says, were like the teeth of lions. This denotes fierceness and death-like power in their attacks. Verse 9, they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. This tells us that they are virtually invulnerable. They are strong and well protected. It would take a supernatural power greater than their own to defeat them. And notice what it says. Um, uh, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. Now, there was a writer a few years ago wrote a series of books based on the 
uh, of the book of Revelation. And he said that the wings of the locusts, the sound were helicopters coming. And so he and his visual imagery, these were all the helicopters coming in. Make no mistake about it. These are demons. Now, could demons use helicopters? I guess they could. But, but these are demons. These are locusts that are sent. And uh, whether or not this is physical, spiritual, combination of both, I, I don't have a clue. But I don't see anything about helicopters in, the, uh, in, in chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, verse 10, they have tails like scorpions. Tails like scorpions. Um, this communicates that they possess a painful sting that causes great agony and great suffering and they harm people for five months. Uh, repeats verse 5 and adds emphasis and intensity to their mission of misery. And listen to this and be reminded of this truth. All of this takes place ultimately under God's authority and at God's direction and God's limitation. All of this takes place. Well, verse 11 shows the organization. They have a king. They have his king over them. Now look at this. This is an interesting designation. An angel of the abyss. Now again, some people like to see Satan here. They see Satan as the angel of the abyss directing and guiding and doing all of those things. I don't know if that's true uh, or not. I don't necessarily see that angel that Satan is the angel of the abyss because he's not in the abyss. He's not going back and forth to the abyss and directing what goes on there and then on the earth doing the things that are there. Whether it's Satan or it's some high designated demon or authority, because we know that they are ranked, they are ranked according to Ephesians chapter six. They have some sort of order, some order hierarchy and status, and there's one who is over them as king, and his name is Abaddon. In the Hebrew and in the Greek, it has the name Apollyon. The Hebrew word Abaddon appears six times in the Old Testament. It's derived from a verb that can mean to become lost, to perish, to destroy, or to kill. Abaddon has similar meaning to Hades as used in Revelation 1.18. A similar usage is found in Psalm 88.11 where it's paralleled with the grave. Uh, Job 31.12 used the word to imply an unquenchable appetite. Abaddon is not only a place, but also a person. Abaddon is an appropriate name for the angel of the underworld and the king of the locusts in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. And though he is under God's sovereign power, he has an insatiable appetite and represents not only a destruction that takes life, but a destruction that reaches beyond the grave to the afterlife. Abaddon in the Greek mind who would be the primary readers of this text, they would feel a sense of doom and dread and darkness as John was using um, that made them even more fearful of torture coming at the hand of the angel of this world by simply connecting to the word Abaddon. In the Greek, it's the word Apollyon. If you take the Y and the N away, what do you have? Apollyon, take the Y and the N, you have Apollo. 
Um, this is the Greek counterpart, and it's used as a proper name only here in the Bible. The word carries the idea of one who destroys. Something more subtle, however, may have been in John's use of Apollyon to translate Abaddon. John may have intended a direct attack on the Greek Roman god Apollo, and thus on the reigning power Domitian, who thought of himself as Apollo incarnate. Domitian was an emperor of that time who was terrible uh, towards Christians, destroyed uh, evil, wicked, and ruler, and referred to himself as Apollo incarnate. And by the way, the imagery that Domitian used to describe himself was that of a locust. So again, John is using things that were familiar to him and his culture to bring that imagery into the readers of the first century so that they could understand the things that was about to take place. Very interesting. And so they have over them the king Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon, and with that the first woe is past. And as bad and devastating as this is, behold, it says, look, behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Beloved, as we study a passage of Scripture like this, I do hope that it accomplishes multiple things for us. Number one is I hope it increases your view of the sovereignty of God and the limitless power that He has to accomplish His plan and His purposes. And that your heart is growing to trust Him more and more and to cling to His every word and believe that His thoughts towards you are continually good and that He loves you with an unending, everlasting love and that no matter what you are going through, you can trust that He is sovereignly in control of everything that is happening to you, that involves you, and even the things that are around you. Beloved, I hope your heart is increasing in the knowledge and understanding and trust level that God is sovereign. But I also hope that studying this passage of Scripture will remind you that evil is present. I believe, and I don't have time to develop this, but I believe that there are things that's taking place and happening and confidentiality would not let me to divulge the details. But I believe that there are places within our little congregation right now that seems seemingly insignificant to even the community, let alone the world around us. But I believe that Satan and his demons and evil in some capacity is wreaking havoc at different times of people within our own congregation. I believe He separates you from the core. He separates you from the group. He draws you away. He entices you. 
As I've said last week, He brings discouragement. He brings things to you. He does things within the context of our community that listen, that require us to pursue God in faithfulness and holiness and to trust Him and not give in to the wiles of the devil. I want to remind you to stand firm. You must stand firm. And beloved, you and I are not standing firm when we're not walking in holiness. When we let sin wreak havoc upon our lives, when we pursue the pleasures of this world, when we compromise the standard of God's Word, when we violate the commands that God has given for our good to enable us to walk in holiness and we choose to do our own things, listen, we are placing ourselves in the path in acceptability of the devil wreaking havoc on our lives. I want to remind you of this truth and you know this truth well. Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. But that doesn't mean it will be easy. And finally, what I hope God does with this today and in the days ahead is that as you look around and as you engage and as you consider the lostness of the world around you as you are going I pray that God would use you to make disciples to share the gospel to encourage the saints and to witness to the lost because you beloved you don't want your worst enemy going through the things that we have studied up to now in the book of Revelation and it gets much, much worse in the days ahead. And of all the things that God has created, He's only entrusted you and me with the saving Gospel. Nothing else. There's no other creature that sings the Gospel. There's no leaf on a tree that writes the Gospel. There's no writing spiders that put the Gospel in a web. There is nothing anywhere that can communicate clearly the only saving Gospel than that which is placed in your hands, in my hands. And I pray that the reality of the things to come, and beloved, physical, spiritual, all of these things are the reality which is to come. I pray that He uses the reality of these things in our study to encourage you to go beyond your personality beyond your introvertedness beyond your fear and that he would give you courage and boldness and opportunity to faithfully witness to others and share Christ with those around you without the fear of consequences and may he not only use you to communicate the gospel to them but to be there when they respond to his call of salvation and receive Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and that you will have the pleasure of discipling them in the, in the ways of the Lord for many, many months and years ahead. May God do that work 
in your life and in my life today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of Your Word. And we're thankful for the security of the believer. We are thankful that we see that demonstrated even here in this particular passage of Scripture. Father, I pray that we do not bat an eye at evil. I pray, Father, that we do not um, uh, 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 compromise and dabble in things related to evil forces and darkness. Pray, Father, that we would be our that our we would be strengthened, our eyes would be open to the wiles of the devil, that we would withstand his attacks, and that you would give us the grace, the courage, the strength, and the mercy to stand up for you um, in the in the coming days ahead, starting even today. And also, Father, that we would be found faithful to witness and to serve and to share the good news of the gospel. Father, may You continue to build us up and send us out for Your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. I want us to stand and to sing our closing. Beloved, there's no reason we should hold back. All we have is Christ.